live from Studio G in Minnetonka, Minnesota. This is Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. And I am your host, Jesse, lover of all things green. Let's get started. Okay, welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Jesse. And today we're talking to some folks from Minnesota Native Landscapes, a local full-service ecological restoration company located just northwest of here. Ladies, and I hope it's okay if I call you ladies, (laughs) ladies, (laughs) tell me a little bit about what Minnesota Native Landscapes is because I am fascinated. There's a rumor you do something with the sheep. (laughs) (laughs) We do. We have a lot of sheep. It's our largest uh, division by number of employees or head uh, head count. But um, but yeah, that's just one of the things that we, uh, or one of the tools we use to manage native landscapes across the upper Midwest, um, in addition to prescribed burning and our construction services like installing prairies and wetlands and uh, enhancing woodlands and reconstructing riverbanks and sort of just a really wide uh, range of service offerings that pertain to our local e- ecological uh, habitats. Yeah, and systems. Now, you have uh, kind of a couple of different divisions, like you do wide-scale, big, maybe, would you call them commercial-sized projects, and then even projects for homeowners, like installing a rain garden or uh prairie and you know taking out someone's lawn and installing a prairie correct yep correct so we um do projects of a really wide range of of scales um, and scopes uh from backyards uh to much larger projects both for like nonprofits or uh state or federal agencies um yeah and those backyard projects are kind of our roots and prairies and rain gardens and shoreline enhancements and uh and then we do a lot with offering um, advice for DIY. So okay. for homeowners who want to do a project in their backyard, and maybe it's not something that uh, they want to hire out, but um, we're happy to give advice on, on how to do it yourself. Very cool. So let's learn a little bit about you guys and your backgrounds. Uh, Colleen, tell me a little bit about what work you do specifically at Minnesota Native Landscapes, your background in the field of horticulture and you know, before that, let's just say cheers to women in horticulture. Right. Yeah. We rock. <laughs> Colleen, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I've been in um, the green industry for about 13 years now. Um, my history comes definitely from working in the greenhouse with more annuals and perennials. Yeah. Um, but at Minnesota Native Landscapes, I still work with the plants, but however, on the back end. Um, so for some of our projects and things or a homeowner that's looking for uh, plants for their rain garden, I would suggest a species list for them okay. sure that we've got everything they need, um, help them pick the right seed mixes for their area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my part at Minnesota Native Landscapes. Very cool. So you're like a native gardens coach. Yeah, yeah, yep. pretty much. <laughs> awesome. That's an awesome title. Bree, what are what is your role at Minnesota Native Landscapes? Yeah, so I'm our uh, ecological products consultant. So okay. uh, similar to what Clean described, like really helping set people up with the right projects that will work for their unique uh, site conditions. And, um, and I'm really lucky I get to spend a lot of time working one-on-one with homeowners, landowners, also 
um, all of our other partners. Uh, and um, I've been with the company uh, almost 14 years now, and that's kind of changed over time. You know, I started with our vegetation management team and, and moved on to work um, more uh, in the office, but I can use that experience, you know, that I learned in the field to help uh, really tailor uh, recommendations for our, our customers. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I think there's some sort of a celebration or congratulations in order. Minnesota Landscapes is celebrating an anniversary. Yeah, 25 years this year. And um, we've changed so much over time, but it's really great to see um, so much growth in the industry. Yeah. Um, and, and just the desire for native plants has allowed us to grow what we grow, right? So um, uh -huh. we produce over 200 species of native plants, and right. that, that's grown a lot um, over the last several years in terms of diversity um, that we're able to offer. Right. And so the, uh, the native plant species is kind of how you interface with Tonkadale. Tonkadale, again, uh, for our listeners, is a retail garden center located in Minnetonka, Minnesota. So we're selling, you know, plants, containerized plants for people to take home and plant at home. So you have a wholesale division at Minnesota Native Landscapes. Tell me a little bit about the plant offerings you have. Um, uh, and first, we need to define what is a native plant. Right. I think on the, the wholesale, that's more where I come in. Um, so native plants, that those are the plants that were here pre-1800s-ish. Right, right. You know? um, Pre the first land survey before Minnesota became a state? Yes. Something like that? Yep, yep. Kind of before um, really the migration from east to west. Right, right. Um, so that's what a native plant is, and that's what we really focus on, um, the plants that should be in Minnesota in our area. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, it's for, for wholesale, for Tonkadale, we actually grow uh, over 40 species for you Yeah. Uh, to provide two homeowners mm -hmm. in your business, which is fantastic. Um Everything ranging from pasque flower to uh, very familiar cone flowers and right. things. And then some more um, unusuals, I believe, is what we have. But we've grown quite a bit. I think we just added another species this last year, Missouri Goldenrod. Yeah. Yeah, I think we, um, we really like to produce... Um that wide range of species and, and a lot of them are, are fairly hard to find so um, that and some of them can be real favorites to gardeners um, traditional or native enthusiasts and you don't have to be just a native gardener or just a cultivar gardener right. you no. can integrate the two and it's still it's great really great for our uh, ecosystem and yeah. uh, land management. You don't type have to start from scratch. You can you can certainly enhance any perennial bed um, or even an annual planting with um, some native plants here and there. Um, mm -hmm. It's a really great way to incorporate them. Yeah, and so first impressions of native plants when you see them on the greenhouse shelves, they look a little bit maybe insignificant. They're often available in a smaller container size, so often not a mature plant with its you know most mature leaves. Right. It's not blooming prolifically yeah. like that plant that came off the truck from you know I think a greenhouse grown place uh, forced to bloom in time for spring. Uh, why should people stop and take a look at native plants? Well, I think really um, gardeners need to shift their mindset a little bit when it comes to natives to a sleep, creep, leap yeah. sort of timeline. Yeah, um, I like that. Yeah, this first year, they're not going to do very much. They're going to kind of sleep in your garden, but they're mm -hmm. going to be healthy. They're going to be really putting down good root systems. Um, they're going to creep get a little bit bigger. Some of them will bloom second year, but not okay. many if you're doing um, blossoms versus grasses. Right. Um, but then by year three, then then you should really start to see some improvement um, 
in their growth habits, some larger plants, and some blossoms. Mm -hmm. um, but those natives, even though they don't look very impressive in their little six packs and their little tiny containers, right? Um, it, it, they're an investment. They're not an annual that you're going to enjoy for, you know, four months in Minnesota or six months if right. you're lucky. If you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it really is a long range planning, um, which I think is great for, for home gardeners. Like um, in my own garden, I've got plenty of spots that I leave open, lots of shade, but I have a lot of natives that are there all season long and then I pop in some coleus or begonias for a little bit of color yeah so it's very easy to to mix the two right totally and I think you know now that we're on the subject of native plants which is a huge part of your business and I'm guessing primarily what you are installing when you're restoring these different landscapes and doing projects um, talk about why we should be using native plants in our home gardens yeah. Specifically. And I just want to go back real quick. And yeah. Say, with the containerized plants, um, it's funny because if you take a, a native plant out of its little six-pack cell, um, you're going to notice that the above, above what you're looking at with your eye um, in the pot, you're above pot growth yeah. <laughs> versus the roots that are um, that are kind of established there. You're going to be maybe a, kind of taken back by, by the roots and and maybe think that it's root bound or something, but um, native plants don't really get root bound. So that's a great thing about them as well. Okay. And kind of just get them in the ground. But those roots are going to be more impressive probably than the above pot. The vegetative <laughs> growth that you yeah. see. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. I think, and I think native plants sometimes kind of get a, a bad rap for that or they get passed by. Um, you know, they're going to grow quickly in those little cells. So sometimes they get a little tall and leggy. Yeah. But, you know. Getting, it's very hard to get a, a six-foot-tall blue stem to look good in a two-inch pot. They'll, right. <laughs> They'll be great when you get them home. But the idea is, you know, having them in smaller sizes is, you know, you can plant more in mass, which is actually kind of a strategy when gardening with native plants. Definitely. Anyway, back so, to the subject at hand. Why should we be using native plants in home gardens? So, yeah, native plants are from here, um, you know, and they they provide what we need um for our local wildlife, um, for clean water benefits. So um, these plants are, they thrive here, they've been here. They're going to be much more resilient in your garden. So, you know, you don't really have to worry, is this gonna come back next year? Right. Um, you really just, you're planting for sun, you're planting for soil moisture, and you don't have to consider a lot else. Um, uh, if, if you're picking a plant that is for a sun, sunny garden and um, dry to medium soils, it's, you have such a wide range of options to choose from. And then beyond that, um, they're not so sensitive to, you know, are they going to be happy in this location? Uh, they're, they're most likely going to be just fine. And they're going to be kind of that anchor that comes back year after year. And uh, that's one nice thing for a gardener. But then on top of that, you're providing all these great benefits for monarch butterflies and our um, bumblebees and even um, songbirds and other local wildlife that you want to attract to your garden. Yeah, they really evolved together. The the, I mean, the birds and the bees and the butterflies and the plants all kind of evolved together. And there's a lot of specialist um, species of butterflies, like the carnar blue needs the lupin. Um, obviously, the big one is monarchs need milkweed. Right. Um, so that, I think, is really why it's so important to get natives and maybe not some of these... Um, like, there has been a tropical milkweed that has been featured recently, um, which I do 
encourage people to avoid a little bit um, because we do want that true native milkweed. Right. Number one, it's going to bloom at the right time. Correct. You know, when the when the butterflies need it um, and not be blooming at the wrong time and keep the butterflies here maybe later into the season than they should be. Right. Yeah, there has been uh, a little bit of talk about confusing butterflies uh, when cultivars are blooming longer. Um, I think you might have talked about it in your talk here the other weekend where cultivars are blooming longer or later or kind of off season. It it kind of tri- trips them up. They're they're visiting plants when they, they should be migrating. should be migrating or should right. be doing something else. Let's talk a little bit about uh, cultivars and how cultivars you know have been bred for specific characteristics that people really love. So what would those characteristics be? Well, like looking here at the begonias, you can just see it. You're 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 breeding for um, for blossom size and you know containerized, and is it going to stay in its little spots and and bloom pro- prolifically all season long? Um, but unfortunately, in doing some of that, we have really lost the benefits. We've lost the pollen. Mm-hmm. We've lost. Um, like even even the plants. So you think of the monarch butterfly. Well, it needs to start out as a caterpillar. That's why we need the milkweed. Right. The, the butterfly could care less about the milkweed. Right. It'll visit a bunch of things, but it needs it for its caterpillars. Um, in plants, if you've got a beautiful green leaf, that's what the caterpillars are going to eat. If you've got a dark leaf, mm-hmm. like a lot of these um, different cultivars have for, for shade and, and for things, they can't eat it. A dark leaf or a variegated yeah. leaf, uh, some color, color differentiation. And so if we've, as we've bred for bigger, larger blooms, uh, things that don't need to be deadheaded, double flowers, we've left kind of the pollen and nutritional value of flowers behind doesn't mean there's not a place or use for them because you know we are obsessed with all the beautiful begonias and geraniums and petunias right (laughs) Uh, but there still needs to be a place for the native plants in the landscape let's talk about incorporating native plants into our you know existing garden designs that's a place where you know the average homeowner can start what are some of the things to consider when getting started with native plants it can be pretty easy um you know you could do a little research online prior to um, visiting the shop um, to see what are some things that you like um things like big blue stem or little blue stem um do you like a tall grass um if so you could use that as a you know an anchor in your garden and plan uh, a, a little planting around it where you're um, considering uh, using that blue stem to help hold taller flowers upright, like the meadow blazing star, um, which can attract a huge number of monarch butterflies to your garden because of its uh, really high-quality nectar. Um, and then, you know, and then from there, consider spring, summer, and fall bloom times to right. provide the most benefits for uh, local pollinators um, and other wildlife as well as picking some of your favorites historically and then maybe trying out the native version like a like a bee balm or a wild bergamot um, and finding a spot where you don't mind a little bit of spread because even, you know, the cultivars of, of uh, wild bergamot or bee balm will spread in your garden. They sure <laughs> and, do, yeah. yeah. And the natives will, will kind of um, take advantage of open space just the same. And, and that's all they're doing um, when you have a plant that's slightly aggressive. They're just taking advantage of the space and, and filling in. Um, and knowing that native plants will spread by seed. Um, that, that seed is viable, so um, it's going to drop in your garden, and, and you may have um, prairie smoke where you didn't plant prairie smoke last year. 
um, and that's uh, just something to consider. You know, if you are if you're gardening with um, in a mulch bed, um, then then you're going to probably be fine because uh, seeds need that seed to soil contact. Um, but uh, right, okay. So if you do have some mulching happening, you might cut down on some of the reseeding. Uh, let's talk about bloom time. I think this is extra important just for both for human enjoyment because we want to see flowers all season long. We are dying for color. We are lusting after color. Especially this year. Especially this year. And don't we say that every year? Especially this year. Every winter brings a new challenge, right? And this year's challenge is snow. So let's talk about uh, what are some of the early blooming native varieties, maybe like top three most popular. Uh, feel free to add to this, Bree, but I think past flowers, probably one of the early, early ones. Um, and then smooth penstemon would be another early season bloomer. King. Golden Alexanders. Ooh. I think that, and that one's beautiful. That one's a lemon color. Yeah. I'm, I am a yellow fan, so. It's, you know, it's a little challenging to get yellows and blues in the garden mm-hmm. at times, right? And there are some stunning native blues, not early season, but yeah. uh, blue lobelia, if you've got a rain garden or wet area. Yeah. That one is really gorgeous. Um, gentian is another really good oh, one. Oh, yeah. Love that one. That's a later bloomer, right? That is a later bloomer. All right, let's stick to the mid-bloomers. Top three native mid-bloomers. You know, you can't go wrong with the purple prairie clover uh, in a, in a for habitat perspective or providing um, good resources, but also it's just such a pretty dainty flower to add to your garden. Um, mid-season, maybe even liatris. That's more late season, though. It's August. A, it's a summer bloom, technically, but yeah, the, the meadow blazing star is such a fantastic addition, and I never want to rule out, you know, adding something like prairie drop seed and little blue stem um, in, into your native plantings. They're great. Uh, bunch grasses to incorporate and add visual interest kind of through the the entire year. Mm -hmm. I love perennial grasses and native grasses and blue stem has my heart. I'm going to tell you why it has, you know, beautiful blue foliage and then a really beautiful seed head. It looks like a turkey foot, right? Common name would be turkey Mm -hmm. foot. And then it just, it glows to this beautiful bronze fall color that you know lasts into the winter and if it's not covered all the way by snow can be really interesting Um, and it can you know it can provide some overwintering habitat for native pollinators and um, seed pods edible yeah Mm -hmm. for birds etc so I do I do love a good grass. All right, let's talk about some of the late season bloomers. What are your favorites? I think that's where native plants are like really awesome to add to the garden is, um, you know, the asters and goldenrods. Oh, yes. And I think, I know I know a lot of people um, are afraid of goldenrods because of the association with fall allergies. And right. It's not always goldenrods fault. Some people are allergic to goldenrod, but most people are allergic to ragweed, which is yes. pretty small and hard to notice. And, and when, you know, it's it's, I think it, it's often mixed up, but goldenrod pollen is actually very heavy and doesn't um, disperse through the wind, so it's not really a common allergen. But anyway, um, goldenrods and, and asters are just this beautiful purple and blue and, and gold in the fall time, and it, it bloom, they, they all bloom well into um, later fall when those uh, nectar and pollen resources are a, a bit more scarce. 
And so not only are they providing later color, but also some of those really important resources for um, hibernating pollinators and insects. Right, and really giving those monarchs a, a chance to fuel up before they head out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they got to pump some iron. <laughs> All right, let's talk about host plants. Can you, let, let's define what a host plant is. It sounds, you know, it sounds really simple to, you know, us, we're really used to that term, but what is a host plant and why are they important? So a host plant is a species of plant that is relied on for a for wildlife, whether it's um, a butterfly or a bee or uh, anything else, really, they cannot survive without that plant. Right. And the, for natives, it's, a, it's often the larval host for um, moths and butterflies. And, and they're often, you know, we, we talk about milkweed a lot for monarchs, and that's great. And it's super great that, you know, if you don't want common milkweed in your garden because it's a little bit showier, you can pick butterfly milkweed and it's a really beautiful bright orange, but you could put some common milkweed along a fence line or somewhere else. Um, but but then there's host plants like oak trees and um, just a huge variety of uh, things that you might not think about that are maybe in your yard already um, that, are, that are hosts, uh, especially trees and shrubs, host to, you know, hundreds of native pollinators that you've never even heard of before. Right. And I mean, maybe folks don't get hung up on having the perfect assortment of host plants per se, but one of the benefits of planting those native species is that you're inevitably going to have host plants for some of the beautiful butterflies, moths, and insects that we enjoy in our yards. All right. At Minnesota Native Landscapes, one of the services you offer would be planning, site preparation, and even installation of rain gardens. I think uh, rain gardens can be kind of intimidating. You know, I'm always thinking about the math, like how much water is this supposed to process and how much time and what elevation? Um, But break it down for us. Can you help us simplify the process of installing a rain garden? And if you're getting started, how would you do that? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple different ways to do a rain garden. The first is the highly engineered where it's there's a curb cut and it's collecting runoff off of a parking lot or a street and it's all very planned. But if you have an area in your yard, either where downspouts run um, to maybe a low spot or maybe you have a spot that's kind of squishy all the time um, or just a spot that after a rain um, holds holds some moisture for a longer period of, than the rest of your yard um, or, or a low spot between your yard and your neighbor's yard. Um, those are great areas to consider a rain garden on a DIY scale or or a smaller scale than, than I mentioned before with the major plans that's needed. Um, those are areas where we can just kind of alter what's there and um, and choose a really fun assortment of plants that are going to look good uh, through the growing season and also function um, to filter some of that runoff and filter some groundwater and um, and, and feed some birds too. So why is it important that we capture runoff and we keep the rain where it falls? Well, you're really filling up the groundwater, you know, um, allowing that, that soil to slowly seep into the ground. As it runs off, it's going to be carrying sediment. Right. Um, carrying sediment down into our, our rivers, our, or our, our lakes, um, and into our water treatment facilities. And right. And we're spending money to clean the water. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those root systems, like for me, I, I have, where I'm located, it's heavy, heavy clay. Um, so I use a lot of, and it, it gets, we call it 
our lake in the backyard that uh-huh. we did not anticipate having when we bought the house. Oh, geez. Um, so I've planted quite a few natives that can handle wet feet mm-hmm. um, and yet also handle being dried out a little bit. And I think that's most of our rain garden plants. Okay. That they, um, they definitely prefer to be a little bit more on the wet side. Um, and they're going to slow down that runoff filter the water and then break up that soil with mm-hmm. their root systems allowing the water to seep down instead of just run off with my neighbor's mulch in the next neighbor's yard. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> Floating mulch. I hate it. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about uh, for a sunny rain garden, uh, what would be five really great plants to have in that garden? So I would definitely start with something like a red osier or red twig dogwood. Um, okay. Because a really, I mean, if, if you have enough space for it. But yeah. they, they can handle a lot of pruning, so it's a, it's a great um, thing to consider. But, you know, then there's the uh, native sedges like a fox sedge or um, tussock sedge. And these are sort of grassy-looking, mound-forming plants that kind of not, look kind not of look actual like, grasses but sedges sedges and not like creeping nut sedge that everybody hates in their yard right um, these are well behaved um and they're just like kind of really beautiful anchor plants uh, similar to like a little blue stem in a in a traditional garden right um and then the flowers um there's so many to choose from but why not pick something like cardinal flower and attract mm-hmm. some hummingbirds to you oh i love them yes mm-hmm. and uh and then you go up the banks of the rain garden you can go you know for, to plants that can handle more varying moisture uh-huh. something like the bee balm or, or wild bergamot as well as uh mountain mint ironweed okay um bones that I would say. Yeah, and Joe Pieweed. Uh, I think a lot of people love Joe Pieweed. Oh, and yes. when you're digging a rain garden that, that has a little bit of depth to it, mm-hmm. uh, you can take a plant like Joe Pieweed that can grow five feet tall. And, yeah. and it's it's starting down a few feet, so it's kind of a more of a medium height plant when, yeah. when you're starting with a depression like that. So I think uh, this is a beautiful rain garden. I love everything you chose <laughs> so much. Um, you have varying flower shape varying heights uh one thing people may not think about is actually using shrubs in a rain garden you know especially you know if it's a large area they're going to take up a lot of space and add kind of that chunky element uh where a place for your eye to rest because sometimes rain gardens you know they get a bad rap for looking kind of weedy or overgrown welcome to natives welcome to (laughs) natives getting a bad rap yeah i know it's so unfortunate but again with the dogwood you're going to have four season interests spring blooms uh beautiful foliage some even variegated probably not the native species (laughs) sorry (laughs) and then that beautiful red stem throughout that darkens as the days get colder right so you have that uh, to enjoy all winter long um so inspiring what would be kind of like your closing remarks or advice uh, for people interested in native plants or you know just people that are native curious yeah I always recommend taking a look around your property this spring and seeing underutilized spaces or spaces that don't um have a function currently around you know along the side of a garage or along a fence line like I mentioned before or under um, under a tree line you know where it gets partial shade um, other spaces like that 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 you could add a, a small native planting um, that maybe won't uh, disrupt your current perennial bed or annual pots but um, is a space that you could add more beauty and function to your backyard. I would pay close attention um, as things come up in the spring. Do you have something blooming all three seasons out of the year? Okay, yeah. Um, 
I've always told people, what does your yard look like? And they'll describe it to me. And I'm like, do you have pictures? Yeah. Take pictures of your yard. That'll help me so much better yeah. understand yeah. Um, what you're dealing with. But yeah, take pictures of your yard. Do you have something blooming as early as April, May, you know, all the way through October? Right. Yeah. I mean, people forget we do have a long spring and summer season. And it, to me, it, summer is lasting later and later into, you know, traditional fall every year, September and into October, we're, you know, cleaning out our gardens later and later. Uh, so we have to adjust how we think about gardening and just how we plant. Um, ladies, it has been so fun talking with you today. And thank you for being here a couple of weekends ago and sharing all this wonderful information with our guests and customers. We cannot wait for those first flats of native plants to ship into Tonkadale. When when you think that'll be? Um, <laughs> hopefully early April if the oh, snow melts. They're growing. They're hopefully growing. early April. Yeah. Or early May. Sorry, early May. Early oh. May. Yeah. I mean, our target to have everything ready is always, you know, that big Mother's Day weekend. Yes. But you can plant perennials and native plants all season long. And just know that the experts here at Tonkadale are here to share our knowledge of native plants. And if we don't have the answer, we're going to find it. We got Bree, we got Colleen, we got them on speed dial. Um, so anyway, thanks for listening to the podcast today. And we'll see you next time on Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. That's it for this week's episode of Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. I am your host, Jesse. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at Tonkadale.